Lord, some of us have known you a long time. Some of us have just come to know you. And some, Lord, we're still searching after you. We pray tonight because of your presence, because of your love, because of your goodness to us, we would know you more. We ask, Lord, by your Spirit, through your Word, to reveal your Son to us. Amen. Well, I come from Bristol. I know I don't sound like it much, my old babby. And uh, Bristol, apart from being the most brilliant city in Britain, is also the capital of graffiti in the United Kingdom. Some of you will know that it's where Banksy is from, and many of his most famous um, street art pictures are found and can be seen in Bristol. And uh, Bristol City offers all sorts of tours, and you can go and visit all the amazing murals that have been put up and, and uh, explore the street art that is there. I do encourage you to have a go, have a visit, great city, and have a look at some of the amazing art. And actually, one of my hobbies is photography, and uh, I often go to Bristol and find myself snapping away at the latest graffiti. Now, since ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, graffiti has been a medium, a form for people to voice or to vent their opinion on politics or life or religion or whatever. It was Simon Garfunkel who wrote those words that many of us all know well. The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls. And I often pay attention to graffiti to see what people think and think it so strongly that they're prepared to go and paint it and break the law, putting it on a wall. Graffiti actually goes back to the cavemen, back to the Stone Age. And in Lasseau Caves in the Dordogne in France, there are over 3,000 famous images, or 3,000 images, and some of them are very famous pictures of hunting scenes, ancient cavemen painting with these brown and red pigments, um, hunting scenes, beautiful animals. But the fact is most of the 3,000 images that are there on the caves are in fact graffiti. And Professor Guthrie, who is an expert in cavemen graffiti, this is Oxford, a little bit of info there, he says this, this, most of it is adolescent giggles in dark caves. In other words, it's toilet humor that you see. Now, I don't recommend reading graffiti in toilets as a rule, although I often do. Quite quickly, you know what it's like and what it isn't like. But one bit of graffiti on a toilet wall in Oxford really stood out to me a little while ago. In fact, they, they were really kind in this toilet, and they, they actually had painted this kind of um, blackboard painting or paint and provided chalk for you to use the toilet to sit there and draw whilst you thought. Anyway, on this particular toilet wall, it had these three words, and this is where I'm going this evening. It said, live life loved. Live life loved. And I kind of think that if God were into graffiti, that he would write something like 
that. I've occasionally seen and taken pictures of graffiti of Christians trying to put something decent along something rather indecent in the public toilet, often writing in carefully and neatly um, a Bible verse. And one of the verses that comes up time and time again is the one that we had read to us then, one that many of us here will know by heart. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And I was amused that Tyson Fury, who is a Christian, the gypsy king, who won his fight last night, greatest boxer Britain's ever produced, he sent out to 4.9 million followers last night on Instagram, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Live life loved. How do we live life loved? We appropriate to ourselves the truth that is in John 3.16. I think that's God's tag. That's his moniker. That's his mark. And there's the wisdom of the divine. There's the wisdom for us to live by in John 3.16. And the tragic thing is that many don't live life loved, they live life lost. They're broken, and it breaks God's heart. Well, I just want to make two simple points this evening from this well-known verse. And the first is this, that God loves you to death. He loves you to death. We expect our mums to love us, and often they do. We expect our partners to love us, and often they do. But do we expect God to love us? Sometimes our parents fail in loving us. Sometimes our partners fail in, uh, in loving us. Sometimes those who profess love don't demonstrate love to us. But God loves us. And this is almost un fathomable. How can it be that God, the Lord, the creator, the sustainer of the universe would love a little ant, as it were, like me? How can that be? And yet that is the reality of the Christian faith. That is the heart of the good news. That is what Jesus revealed to us. That's what we read here in this verse, that God so loved us. He so loves you. God so loved the world. And if you're in the world, you are in the orbit of his great affections. You matter greatly to the most important supreme being of the universe. He thinks about you. He cares for you. He has gone out of his way for you. He wants to spend forever with you. And his love is lavish. It's not picked up with chopsticks. It's not dispensed with a, a pipette. And it, the text says he doesn't just love us. He doesn't merely love us. He's so loves us. 
And that word there can be uh, translated to imply he loves us in this way, but it also reflects the magnitude of his love, the extent of his love. He so loves us. And it's in the past tense, God so loved the world. It's not subjunctive. It's not a possibility. It's not a maybe. It's not set in the future dependent upon what we bring to the table. He already loves us. He has loved us. He does love us, and he will always love us. Our performance, our achievement cannot intensify his already great love for us, for you. Indulge me. Point a finger at yourself. Save me pointing at you. And say, God loves you. Why don't you say it? Say it out loud. After three. One, two, three. God loves you. Say it again. God. Say he really loves you. Some of you believe it. Some of you thought that was stupid enough and you're not playing my games and being manipulated. But, listen, he loves you. I wish I could convey that to you this evening. He saw you from afar, and he loved you. From all eternity, you were in his mind and in his heart, and the purposing between the action of his hand, he loves you. And he prepared. He is, we were hearing this morning a great sermon from our rector, Stephen. He prepared a great banquet for us. He's already prepared it. And he doesn't expect us to bring anything to it but ourselves. Literally, just bring yourselves. We don't have to get ourselves ready. We don't have, it's not a question of bring your own. It's just bring yourself. He's thrown a party. And there he is at the banquet. And as Stephen said this morning, the seat, there's a seat at the table for us because he loves us. And he loves us to death. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave up. He gave over. He gave unto death. God so loved the world that he gave. God's love is a given love. It's not abstract. It's not sentimental. It's certainly not merely poetical. It is a love of substance. It's a love that is rooted in flesh, that is rooted in time and rooted in place. It's a love that is poured out in red at Calvary. God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved you that he gave his son for you. And Jesus wasn't some hapless victim of situation and circumstance. Jesus willingly, of his own free volition, hands over his life. Now listen, saints, this is a, a mystery. And after all these decades as a Christian and as a teacher trying to understand it, I still don't understand the mystery of it. But then I'm not God, so how can I understand God? I simply know that God, in time, in place, in space, in the per person of Jesus, worked out his plans to bring me to him. And he did it in the mystery of Calvary. And there on a cross, the most beautiful life the world has ever seen is smashed and crushed. 
And he, the perfect life of Jesus, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. God puts on him the iniquity of us all. God judges our sin in him. And he is a perfect sacrifice, a substitute. He stands and dies and suffers in our stead for us. God loves us to death. And he did it all freely. There's no external exigency upon him. The great theologian Karl Barth said, God is the, God is the one who loves us in freedom. This is how he loves us. This is how he loves you. He loves you to death. God loved you more than himself. And he's willing to die for you. He's willing to go to hell and back to get you back to spend forever with you. And his love satisfies our longing for love because we're wired for it. We were made in his image by him, like him, for him. And our hearts are restless, said St. Augustine, until they find their rest in him, until they find their place, until we're back where we belong with God. This summer, the gifted and uh, edgy, I was trying to think how to describe him, but I, I think it's sort of pop punk. It's a singer who, who goes by the name Youngblood. Sounds sort of Scandinavian, but I think he's from Doncaster or something like that. Anyone heard of young blood? Come on. Hey, I'm trying to keep my finger on the cultural pulse here. Yes, I see a few hands. <laughs> Three. And um, anyway, he produced a song this summer called Fleabag. And listen to these lyrics. I'm just a flea bag. Nobody loves me. Send me to rehab. Somebody touch me. I want to turn back time. I want to fix the way I was designed, crawl behind my eyes, kill my stale state of mind. I fade and fade. And every time I try to change, I stop, because I'm just a flea bag, and nobody loves me. I've really moved when I saw those lyrics. And very gifted guy really good. I mean, it's actually quite a good song. It's got melody. It's not just a noise, you know. And, uh, and it's got poetry in the lyrics, except it just conveys this gnawing angst in this guy's life. And even though he's got huge gifting and success and fame and fortune, he's got no happiness. And he writes a song like that, and I don't think it's an affectation. I think that's how he feels. And the extraordinary thing is that in the last month or so since it was uploaded, there have been 10 million people who've watched the official video or downloaded it on Spotify. 10 million. And I've read some of their comments, quite a few. I mean, nowhere near 10 million, you know, more like 20. But I've read some of them. And time and time again, they're saying thank you because that's how I feel. I thought it was just me. Thank you for articulating, explaining. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for your empathy and your sympathy with me. Dear man, but all he's doing is holding up a mirror to the mess in people's lives. And what we need is someone who can step in and sort out the mess. 
I'm just a flea bag. Nobody loves me. And God says, stop right there. You are not a flea bag. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God Almighty. And you are the crown of creation and the object of his affection. And he has given the most precious thing in the universe for you, the life of his very son. You're special because God has loved you. Messed up, soiled up, but loved by God. Youngblood also wrote another song. I haven't heard it. It's called God Save Me. You see, he's on a journey, and he's, the words of the prophets are written on the subway boards. He understands something of the human condition, of the angst and the enemy that is there. And so many feel like that. And even in a place like Oxford, where people can come here with so much, this city of prestige, and they can come and do their undergrad or their postgrad degrees, their BAs and MAs and MBAs and their DPhils, and, and go on to great sparkling careers, and, and they can earn plenty of money, and they can you know, move in society and acquire all sorts of things, yet inside they can feel just like that. Nobody loves me, and I'm just a flea bag. I know it. I talk to them. I'm a priest. I spend my time with people all the time. I know what's going on. And it's a lie. But without God in their life, speaking that over their life and revealing that to them, then all I've got is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those three take no prisoners. I've been corresponding the last couple of weeks with a well-known artist. And uh, his work is widely printed and in the last year or so, he's sold over a million copies of a book of his art and thoughts he's produced. For 40 weeks, he was near the top of the New York Times bestseller, and his overarching theme is love. Everyone's been buying the book. Why? Because he's just talking about love. People are looking for love. But as the song goes, in all the wrong places. And he told me last week that he'd met Jesus unexpectedly for the first time one day in a park in London just sat there, and the Lord drew near and revealed himself to him. And he said this to me, it was the only thing that made sense. Love made sense. I didn't really see beauty till then. One of the most famous artists in the world, living in modern, contemporary, popular. He wasn't a trained artist, but he met Jesus and beauty came alive. And when he saw Jesus, when he saw that he was loved, he began putting that down on paper and conveying love. And people have identified and resonated with it. It's the only thing that makes sense. Love makes sense. Love makes sense of things. God's love makes sense of things. And we need to live life loved. How? Well, it's there. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. That brings me to our second of just two points. You'll be pleased to hear. God loves you to death, and then secondly, God loves you to life. So that whoever, and whoever means anyone, if you're anybody, then you're somebody and you fit in there. Whoever, whoever, however they are, whatever they've done, wherever they've been, they can be loved to life. 
God's love has a goal. It's the expression and overflow of who he is. God is love, but God is also life. And when we experience God's love, we come to life. Now, the word in that verse says that whoever believes in him would not perish. Old-fashioned word. We don't really use it much. But the word in Greek is apolumi. And uh, in my technical lexicons, it has a whole kind of range of meanings. Here's a few of them. To fade. Fading beauty. That's what Youngblood said in his song. I fade, I fade. This word perish means to fade in beauty. To be ruined. To render useless. To put to death. To abolish. To make void. And it's used of food or wine that's gone off. Or a ship that is wrecked of being lost. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish. They shouldn't fade away. They shouldn't be lost. They shouldn't perish. They shouldn't be put to death. They shouldn't be abolished and turned to nothingness. But that, that articulates how so many feel. They're not flourishing. It's a trendy word that we hear these last couple of years, but they're not flourishing. They so often feel they're perishing. And God wants to love us to life through loving us in his own death. Jesus came and said that he'd come that we might have life and have it to the full. Life abundantly, the old translations used to say. Life to the max if you're like trying to be hip, but not, because you're, you know, whatever, like me. The love of God in the person of Jesus that is received by faith, by trusting, by looking, by saying yes to him, is a love that brings us to life, and life in all its fullness. I got a photograph of some graffiti in Bristol that I took, and, and, it says this, when death comes, I want to have lived. When death comes, I want to have, I want actually to have lived. Not just got by, not just breathed. I want to have lived. And many people just exist. But they certainly don't live the life now that God wants for them and the life forever that he's planned for them. I watched a remarkable BBC documentary about three weeks ago called Garage People. I encourage you to have a look on BBC iPlayer, Garage People. Completely remarkable. One of the best things I've watched in many months, if not years. And it's about a particular kind of culture or hobby that is uh, practiced by those in this wintry Russian Arctic northeast, you know, over towards Siberia. And there the folk, it's a mining community, there the folk uh, have garages. They all live in high-rise flats, but they buy these little garages. And uh, instead of putting cars in them, most of them haven't got cars, they turn them into an extra room for leisure and pleasure and so on. And so some have turned them into workshops, some have turned them into places for making vodka, others have turned them into nightclubs, and they're just sort of, you know, 15 foot by 10 foot. 
And it's the center of their life and their leisure. Anyway, in this documentary, we meet a guy called Victor, and he's in his garage. And he's showing the film crew round. And here's his garage, 15 by 10. And uh, there's a trap door, and down they go. Just got a torch, the camera crew are there, and he's got one light on a wire on a bulb. And underneath, he has built a five-story apartment. <laughs> five stories, just like as high as this church. And he'd spend all nights and weekends and all his holidays, just a single bulb, a bucket and a spade, digging, digging, digging. Dig, dig, dig. Carrying it all out in the damp, in the cold, through the permafrost, into the rock, taking it all out, digging. And then he brings down um, concrete and concrete slabs and iron girders, and he's built a five-story apartment under his garage. And his grandson in the documentary says, how long have you been building this garage, granddad? And he says, I don't remember. All my life, I guess. I don't know why I've been digging. I've put money and energy, I put everything into it. I'm now 73. I started this project when I was 27, that's 46 years of digging. And then he says, we can figure out what to do with it later. <laughs> and then shortly after, the film crew rushed to Victor's house. And there you see Victor. And he's suddenly transformed. And dementia has come upon him. And he's just sat there, unable to speak, unable to blink, unable to respond. He can't dress himself, can't shave himself, he can't eat, he can't communicate. There's nothing there. And then we hear that, that like the next day he's taken away and he dies. And he spends 46 years digging, 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 digging. He doesn't know why. He's put his time, his energy, his effort. He's put everything that he's got into it. His son doesn't understand why. His grandson doesn't understand why. He doesn't even understand why. But he thinks there's got to be something more than just a garage. There's got to be something more than my apartment with all the others and my job as a miner in the day. I'm going to dig an apartment underground. I mean, it's like a Dostoevskian tragedy. And he one day finishes, the film crew see it, and then he fades away. And Victor said this, and the last thing he said that I wrote down, I am like a mole working in darkness, digging a hole no one has ever used. Tragic. Now, we can have all manner of fulfilled and meaningful lives and we can be doing good, and, but it just seemed to me to be somewhat of a metaphor that so often we spend our lives dig, dig, digging, 
like a, like a mole digging a hole in the ground that no one ever gonna use. And this morning, extraordinarily, someone came to our church who had a vision. They had no idea what I was saying. They told this to Mark, and Mark came and told me. He had a vision that somewhere over here, but it could have been anywhere, it's relevant for all of us, over here, people were digging in the church, digging, digging, digging. They didn't have to dig long and hard, and there underneath was all this gold. I mean, there isn't any gold, there's just lots of old bones underneath of the saints who've gone to heaven, but digging. And there's the contrast. I'm digging a hole like a mole in the dark that no one's ever going to use. And when I stop digging, I got no purpose and meaning in life and I fade away. But when we find Christ, when we find, as it were, the pearl of great price, when we find that treasure beyond measure that is found in Jesus, that is found in the love of God, then we find life and rather than diminish we will flourish i took another photo of graffiti some writing i take pictures too but i like the sayings and it said this true love finds a way true love finds a way there was no other way for god's love to find us on a search and rescue operation except at Calvary, but there God so loved the world that he gives over his son that whoever believes in him won't perish, won't diminish, won't fade away, won't spend forever separated from God, but will come to life and enjoy the treasure of the kingdom. God loves you to death and he loves you to life.